Yeah. You know, a lot of people think that the church is falling on hard times, that the church is irrelevant, that the church doesn't matter anymore, that we just need to get rid of the church. In fact, sometimes I can go on websites and look at churches, usually uh, young churches, startups, and they like to say we're, we're the non-church, we're, t- we're the unchurch because church isn't cool anymore, so we call ourselves the unchurch. Let me tell you something. God loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus said that the church is going to be his bride. It's the church that he's saving and the church that he's building. The church is not a a building. The church is not a a political organization. What is the church? Well, in the New Testament, the the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. Um, That's the Greek word. And it was kind of a generic word. The word just means uh, an assembly, um, a gathering, a a called out group of people. That's what the church is. There were were a lot of ekklesia during Jesus' day, but Jesus said he was creating his own assembly. He was creating his own group of of called out people, called out of the world to follow him. It's the church that was Jesus' idea. It was the church that Jesus started, that he died for. It's the church that Jesus has protected these 2,000 years, and it's the church that Jesus is growing and, and building and ultimately will be his bride. Jesus' church is is made up, this is one definition, of of all those who have placed their faith in him as Lord and Savior and who have therefore entered into the family of God. There's two words theologians like to use to describe the church. It's universal and it's invisible. For those of you who study doctrine, you've heard that before with ecclesiology, the study of the church. By universal, we mean that it's made up of believers all over the world, every tongue, every tribe, every different kind of person, anyone who places their faith in Christ is part of the church. It's also invisible. It's invisible because the church is made up of of those who've gone before us, of of the apostles, the disciples, of of those who lived years ago who have died in Christ. They're part of the church too. So we can see part of the church, but most of the church we do not see. It's at this point in time, it's invisible to us. So the church is universal. It's huge. The church is invisible, but the New Testament says that we're to, we're to live out that, that reality, that almost kind of intangible, right, bigness reality. We're to live it out in a local setting. So how do we, on a practical, practical level, live out the fact that we belong to a church? We gather together with other believers, other called out ones, and we do what we're doing. And this is the local church. Now, a lot of churches today like to say this is their mantra. They say, we don't do church, we are the church. And that sounds cool, right? We don't do church, we are the church. But that's only half true. It's only half true because what we are will always impact what we do. Always. If what we are doesn't impact what we do, then that's not what we are. It'd be like if I said, married is what I am, not what I do. Right? I've seen some marriages like that and they don't work because marriage is what you are and marriage is what you do. And being a Christian isn't just what you are. Being in the church just isn't what you are. It's what you do. It changes what you do. Now, the first description that we have of the church is found in Acts chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or your devices or whatever, would you turn to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 38. I just want to read this description for you. If you don't have your Bible, you can just listen as I read this for you. This is our first description of the first church. Now, Uh, The day of Pentecost has come. 120 people have gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit has come down, right? People begin to speak in tongues. And then Peter gets up and he preaches a sermon. First sermon 
of the first church. I love the fact that the church started with a sermon. So he, he's preaching, and at the end of his sermon, which was lengthy, it says this, Peter said to the crowd, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, are far off. That would be us. Everyone whom our Lord, our God, calls to himself. And with many other words, in other words, his sermon was long, uh, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So now those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. First meeting of the first church, 3,000 people get added. And they devoted themselves. Now it's going to describe what they did. They are the church. What did they do? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together. They were together. And they had all things in common. And they were selling their, their possessions, and their belongings, and, and giving the proceeds to anyone who had need. And day by day, every day, they were attending the temple together, and they were breaking bread in their homes, and they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the word that comes up again and again in this passage is they were devoted. They were devoted to these things. That, that's an ongoing, habitual lifestyle. Every day, every moment. It's not like the ice bucket challenge, right? You do it once and you're done. It's not like a, the day of fasting that's coming up. Thank goodness it's just one day. It's not like high school, right? Five years and you're done. It doesn't go like that, all right? You got that. Okay, thank you. Um, this is an ongoing thing. So let's look at what the first church did. Let's look at what they did. And we're not going to, I'm afraid we're not going to get through all this tonight, but I'm going to go as, as fast as I can. Here's the first thing we notice about the first church. These were people who were devoted. And you're going to notice in this outline, it all matches up. Always starts with devoted, always ends with together. Because they did these things together. They didn't do these things alone. They did them together. They were devoted to proclaiming the gospel together. Verse 14, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice. This is the beginning. He's, he's preaching. He lifted up his voice and he addressed them. Notice what Peter's doing. He's, he's yelling. He didn't have a microphone system. He didn't have big speakers. He couldn't overpower them. So he, he yelled. He screamed because he's going to preach. He's going to bring the heat. He's going to bring the word of God to the people. He hadn't prepared. He didn't have any notes because he didn't know he was going to preach. It just happened. Here we go. And it's been noted that the very first meeting of the very first church started when the Holy Spirit showed up, manifested himself, and a sermon was preached. And if you, if you read through the sermon that Peter preached, which we're not going to do tonight, but what you'll find is that he preached the gospel. It was all about Jesus from beginning to end. He opened up the Old Testament and he started talking about the Old Testament and he explained how it talked about Jesus. We told you this two weeks ago. The Old Testament is about Jesus from beginning to end. And then when we read the gospels, it's about Jesus. In the New Testament, it's all about Jesus. In verse 42, it says this, and, and, and once he preached the sermon, and once the church got started, here's what they did. They devoted, right? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to, to, to the preaching. Now, we might ask, why is preaching necessary today? Some people ask that. Why can't, we, why can't we just get together and sing? 
and pray and have some food. Why do we need a sermon? The reason we need a sermon is because we've been born into a world that is filled with what theologians will call general revelation. Romans talks about general revelation. General revelation says that when, you, when I look at creation, I can see evidence of a God. I can see evidence of, of his power, of his creativity, of his beauty. But creation does not tell us about the gospel. We're not born with an innate understanding of the gospel of, of Jesus and his person and his work. We must be taught about that. It must be preached. And God has provided this in the Bible. The Bible is, is God-breathed. It, it comes from God. It defines doctrine for us or, or truth. It teaches us of, of God's existence and his attributes of what he's like. It talks about his works. It talks about creation and sin, right? It talks about uh, Jesus' life and talks about the cross and the resurrection and salvation and, and our mission, what the Bible is, and we, we said this a few weeks ago, it's not about us, but it's for us. It's not about us, it's about Jesus, but it's, it's for us. And a good sermon will always teach about the gospel. A good sermon will always explain it. A good sermon will always illustrate it. If it doesn't do those things, it's not a good sermon. Now, one of the things I need to mention is the difference here between principles and methods. Um, uh, the Bible has principles that apply to every church. For instance... Every church should preach the gospel. Not just some, but every church should preach the gospel. And if it doesn't preach the gospel, it's not doing church. But each church has the freedom to figure out what method. So there's principles. A church should preach the gospel. But a method is different. For instance, in some churches, the pastor teaches topically. Uh, a topical sermon is where, you, you know, it's on a topic like love. There's three points. There's usually 2,500 scriptures that are listed. And the pastor goes through all of them. And he doesn't usually explain the context or the history of anyone. He just kind of makes some points and go th goes through it. And there are a lot of churches that do that. And we love those churches. And, and topical sermons can be great. Uh, there's kind of topical contextual. That's, that's what this series is, if you will. It's topical in that we're talking about uh, our topic for seven weeks is the unity of the church. And each week is a different topic, but it's contextual because I'm only preaching one passage every week. We're digging into one. You'll notice in your notes, the only thing we're doing tonight is Acts chapter two. And we're digging at, we're looking at history, we're looking at context. Sometimes churches teach through books. And that's kind of what we've been doing. We did Habakkuk, we did First, Second Timothy, November, the beginning, we'll be starting Luke. And we're gonna go through the book of Luke, verse by verse. I mean, literally, verse by verse. And it's gonna, it's gonna take us a while. In some churches, you have a big old honking pulpit, right? And in some churches, you have like a little music stand and some you have a table, right? Because that's what the cool people use now. They preach by a table, they call hipster. And in some churches, right, they use video. Their, their pastor doesn't even stand up before them. He videotapes it and they have it a, that way. Some, some pastors take 15 minutes, some some take more than that, right? But, but those are like, those are methods. But the principle is preach the word, preach the word, be devoted to the word. They were devoted to the word and that means that they demanded the word, that they wouldn't stand for anything less than the word of God. And if their teachers weren't teaching the word, the solid word, they said, buddy, we gotta, we gotta have a meeting. We gotta talk about this. The method might be determined by culture and audience and resources, but the principle is preach the word. So I encourage you to pray, to pray for me, to pray for those who, who come up here and teach, for those who teach um, our youth, for those who teach our kids, 
for those who teach women's Bible studies and men's Bible studies and our girl group leaders, we, we need the, the Holy Spirit to be guiding us and leading us. But these people devoted themselves. They didn't sit back and say to the pastor, oh, I hope you teach me. They demanded it. They demanded the gospel. And they did it together. They did it together. My first question for you is, does this describe you? Are you someone who's devoted to the word of God together? Not just alone, but together. Here's the second thing that we know about the early church. They were devoted to pursuing the mission. Now, we talked about that that last week, the mission, and they did it together. Notice in verse 38, and Peter said to them, so he's preaching, and he's preaching, and he's kind of bringing the heat, and he says, repent. I always imagine when he says repent, he yells. He doesn't say, like, repent, right? He's like, repent, you guys, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In verse 40, and with many other words, that means he preached for a long time. He bore witness and he continued to exhort them and continued and he said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This is what a good gospel church does. It doesn't just preach the word, it tells people to grab onto it and to repent and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ because we are living in sinful days, in rebellious, foolish days in which most people live a crooked life. That's what he's saying there. He's saying, save yourself from this crooked generation, from this unright generation. So what is the church to do in the middle of a crooked generation? We challenge people to repent by the grace of God. Now, that word repent simply means to change your direction. We've talked about this before. It just means to turn around. It means to do an about face, to undergo a change of thinking, and a change of feeling, a change of practice and, and, and allegiance. The idea is this in life. You're either moving towards Jesus or you're moving toward sin. Only one or the other, never both. To repent means that you turn from sin, you turn around and you go towards Christ. You go toward the cross. That's what you do when you repent. You trust Jesus. You change your way of thinking. You change your priorities, your relationships, your way of life. Now, repentance is very controversial today as it's always been controversial. In the Old Testament, prophets preached repentance. And prophets in the Old Testament usually didn't need retirement plans because if they preached repentance enough, they didn't get to retire. They just got to die and go to heaven, right? Um, John the baptizer preached repentance and he was beheaded for that. Jesus preached repentance and he was crucified for that. Peter preached repentance and he was crucified upside down. And for God's people today, when we preach repentance, not not just love, not just, you know, nice warm, fuzzy feeling, but when we tell people to repent, yeah, that's controversial. People say that preaching repentance is not loving. I hear this all the time. When churches preach repentance, that's not loving. That's intolerant. Asking people to repent is discrimination. Now, let's just set the record straight. First of all, God is tolerant, all right? Who is more patient than God? Who's putting up with more junk and filth than God? Who's more long-suffering than God? All right, God is, God is tolerant. 
And God doesn't discriminate against anyone. God invites everyone to repent. God says people from every language, every nation, every background, every gender, every sexual orientation, every educational level, every political party, we're all invited equally to repent, right? God doesn't discriminate. We all get to repent. And that's a very loving thing to do because people living in sin are rebelling against their creator. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone not want to live in the grace and the love of the one who created them? And if they don't change, their future is bleak. Last spring, I was, I've shared with you, but I was uh, in, uh, in a running program. I'm getting old and trying to like stay healthy and stay in shape. So I was running, but I'm like not the most educated runner. And I, I developed a lot of pain in both of my legs. I went to my doctor. I went to a physical therapist. And basically my physical therapist and doctor both said, they didn't use this word, but this is what they said. They said, you need to repent. That's what they told me. They're like, you need to repent because when, I, when my legs started hurting, I just started running more because I thought I'd work through it. And they said, you need to repent. And I said, no, I need to run more. And they said, no, you need to get on your knees and repent, brother. You need to change your exercise workout. You need to get educated. You need to get some healing. And then when you start back, you need to change so that you can do it in a, in a healthy way. I didn't sit down with my, my doctor and say, dude, what's wrong with you? Why are you so intolerant? You know, why are you, bring, why are you bringing me down? I'm, I'm going to call the ACLU on you. Why can't you just accept me like I am, right? Because my doctor loves me and cares about me. And that's what we do with people when we see them headed away uh, from God. So a gospel church calls people to repent. In other words, they tell people to trust Jesus. And a gospel church is a church where um, the truth is proclaimed and where sin is pointed out, but where people are invited Invited to change in a church is a healthy place and a safe place. It's a safe place for people to confess and for people to repent. Now, I want you to notice how people in the early church repented, by the way. They didn't do it in the privacy of their own heart at home. In verse 41, it tells us how they repented. So those who received his word were, say that with me, were baptized, all right? That word baptizo in the Greek means to dunk. It's like a cookie and milk. It's like a, it's not like a spring. It's a dunking. It's all the way under. And they're added that day about 3,000 souls. So the gospel was proclaimed and the Holy Spirit did his thing and people received it. It, it says here they received his word. Here's a picture I think of when I think of receiving. What does it mean to receive the word of God? I think of it this way. They came to church with their hands full, full of stuff, full of sin, full of selfishness, full of pride. But as they heard the word of God in this church, they began to see the error of their way. And so they opened their hands and they let go of that junk. And then they were free to hold on to the good news, to hold on to the gospel. You can't hold on to it if you don't let go of all the junk. So they embraced the gospel. They repented. They let go of their sin. And then they were, they were baptized, right? This is identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This is, uh, my sins have been washed away. I've, I've come up to new life. Uh, they didn't go through a 101 class. They didn't go through a baptism class. There wasn't a waiting period. They accepted Jesus and they just got baptized right then and right there. And it says there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So the gospel was preached and the Holy Spirit did his thing. Now think about this with me. The church went one day from 120 to 300 or to 3,120. 120 to 3,120. 
Suddenly, there's not enough parking spaces for all their chariots anymore. They don't have enough bulletins to give out. Not enough communion wafers. They run out. Coffee runs out. Makes people uptight. There's no, everyone has to sit like right next to each other. You can't create. You ever create the little bumper space next to you, right? The little, the little purse, the little, no, there's none of that, right? There's like, because there's no, there's no room. <laughs> Can you imagine how awesome that would be? The service just goes on. I did the math, by the way. If, if they baptize somebody every 30 seconds, it would take them an entire 24 hours to baptize everyone. Do you think at any point they were like, good grief, when are people going to stop going forward to get what? Is there any way to like speed this thing up? You know, it's like that people won't stop singing. Peter won't stop preaching. Wouldn't that be cool? You're like everything but the preaching part. We're not like, let's pray that God makes us that flexible so that if he, would, if he would choose to work that way, that that would be something that we would only praise him about and never complain about. The inconveniences of new people and visitors and new Christians, that that would just be something that we embrace and that we love. Well, they did that. They embraced that together. Here's the third thing they did. They were, they were devoted to providing for the needs, for needs together. This is a third thing that they did. In verse 44, it says, and all those who believed they were, again, they were together. They, they were together a lot. And they had all things in common. That's, that's all their possessions. And, and they were selling their possessions and, and their belongings. In Acts 4, it says there are extra pieces of property in their vacation homes. And they were distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, let's just, this is simple. Our God is a generous God. He is a generous, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was God who gave us the earth. It was God who has given us life. We're the ones who sinned. And yet he gave us his son. And he gave us the cross. And he gives us forgiveness and, and the Holy Spirit and his word. And he gives us a spiritual family and an inheritance. Jesus is generous. And when he lives in you, he awakens a desire to be generous. Don't shut it down. This is what we do sometimes. We shut it down. We shut down the generosity that God awakens in us through worrying and, and selfishness. But, but it's natural for a Christian to be generous. It's natural. Don't shut that down. This is what's happening in that first church. Generosity is a, it's awoken in them. Now, some people, and I read an article this week that said, oh, in this church here, it's, it's communism. It's, it's communalism. It's, it's socialism, right? Because no one owned anything. They sold all their assets and they put it in a big pot and everyone just came and took whatever they wanted and freeloaders, you know, moved in. And it was just, it was awful. It was communism. It was socialism. That's not what this is. This is just generosity. This is just an inward attitude. This is not externally forced on anyone. No one was forced to sell stuff. No one was taxed. There wasn't a system. It's just that people became, they became so, so generous, so in love with God, so, so intoxicated by his generosity that they, they couldn't help themselves. Now, the Bible teaches that, that this isn't about communism or communalism or any of that. It just teaches that we are stewards. The Bible teaches ownership. And, and, and God may give you things to own. He may give you a home that, that you own. He may give you a car and clothes and income and wealth and possessions of course, God is the owner. You are the steward. The steward is one who, who, who takes care of the stuff for the owner. He sees after the stuff, but he never forgets. It's not his stuff. He's supposed to do with that stuff uh, things that reflect the one who owns it. So we take our cues as stewards from God, the Father, not from the world. 
Now, how did people in that early church practice generosity? Well, a couple ways. We're told in Acts chapter 4, for instance, that sometimes they would take and they would give money to the church leaders. Um, in fact, in Acts 4, it says that people would give money, they would sell possessions, they would sell property, and they would give it to the church leaders because oftentimes when people had need, they would come to the church. So the church leaders knew who those people were, and that, that happens a lot of gateways well. We have people who come in, they'll say, I need help with rent, I need something to eat, I need some gas money. They don't come to your home. They don't knock on your door. They come here, and I'm, I'm guessing you like it that way, right? And so that's part of what we do is, is people come here, and, and we help them out. We have something called the Deacon's Fund. We're going to take the uh, off, or let's see, we're going to take communion in a few minutes. And during that time, we like to point people towards a little envelope that was in your offer or in the bulletin tonight. And that's a little different than the general fund. The money that you give to the deacon fund is only used to help people who are in need. People in our congregation, sometimes outside of our congregation, who come and say, I'm in a desperate situation and I need some help. Uh, we have a food pantry. Some of you bring food. Some of you bring money to help out with that. And then we have our general fund. When you, when you give to the offering and give to the general fund, you are actually giving to, to help to serve people uh, in our church and in our community. I don't know if you've thought of it that way, but when you give money to the general fund, that money is, is helping us provide pastoral care for people who are in need, for people who need counseling. It provides discipleship. It provides preaching and Club W on Tuesday nights and youth group. It provides for women's ministries and men's ministries. So they would just give directly to the church. And sometimes in the New Testament, they would just give directly to the person in need. They wouldn't even go through the church. They'd just see a need and they'd just, they'd just meet it. And today I see that all the time. I see a lot of that in our church. And, and it's always pretty cool. I've seen people in our church give away cars, like cars, like good car, cars that work. We have a car in our garage that someone gave us. It, it actually worked. It, it, it runs, right? Um, I've seen people give away appliances. Like not, not even give away. I've seen people buy brand new, shiny appliances for, for others in need. I've seen people provide a room uh, for a while, shelter, groceries, furniture, school tuition. Did you know that, that Gateway gives away $10,000 every year in college scholarships? And that money comes from some people in our congregation who want to do that. $10,000 a year through generosity of people in this church. Christmas gifts, right? I, I just, I'm giving away a table saw. And somebody said, wow, you're generous. You're giving a, ta a table saw. I said, yeah, somebody gave it to me. Someone gave it to me and now I'm giving it to someone else. And if you need it, you know, maybe you could be next in line. How does that happen? Well, the, the gospel has impacted our lives with generosity. My question for you is, how's that playing out for you? How's that playing out? Is, it, is your money all about you or is it a stewardship that reflects the true owner? And what, the, what it says is that they practice generosity together. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but are your eyes open to the needs of, around you. So they practiced generosity together. And here's a fourth thing they did. We've already gotten farther than I thought we would. They, they were devoted to doing life together. It's kind of a big umbrella, but they, they did life together. Let me tell you what I mean by that in verse 46. And day by day. So not, not every Saturday night at six, not every Thursday night at Grogu. Day by day, seven days, day by day, attending the temple together and day by day, breaking bread in their homes. 
And they received their food with glad and, and generous hearts. So it says they gathered at the temple daily. Now the temple, that was their big group gathering. That'd be kind of equivalent to what we're doing here. It took place in the outside court of the temple and they would just kind of, there was a huge court, but, but the, the church would get together in a little corner of it and um, they would have a worship service. They would have hundreds of thousands of people that were there. They would pray. There would be a sermon. They would sing, take an offering. There would be fellowship because that's vital. And what we do in here is vital. The worship that we do together, this is, this, we, what we did earlier is we weren't, we weren't singing songs. I, I've been praying all week long all week that when we sang, it would be more than songs. It would, be, it would be a connection between you and God. That was my prayer this week. Because just singing songs, what, and you can do that in your car. You know, you can go down karaoke night, do that. That's what this is. This is singing from your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we do in here is important. Praying together, teaching together. But here's the thing, fellowship in here can only go so far. Have you noted that? Notice that? Like fellowship, like you're walking out. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? Great. Enjoy the weather. Yeah. And you're on your way. Right? It can only go so far in here. So that's why they met also in their homes. Right? So they ate meals together and they talked about Jesus together. And it says they prayed together and they did fellowship together. People say, well, how small were these small groups? Well, it depended. The, the average house in Judea, we're told, was smaller than your garage, all right? So, you know, grow groups there were pretty small. There's probably just a, a, a handful of people. In a city like Laodicea, more wealthy homes, uh, people there, the average home is about 3,000 square feet, so they could have more people. Some of those homes had courtyards. Um, archaeologists have discovered where they could have had 100 or more people at a time in their courtyard. So these, these small groups, they varied in size, but, the, but they were important. The, the big time together was important, but they needed to have a place for intimate fellowship. And that's why Gateway, our strategy is we have grow groups. Because we know that as great as this is, you can't, you can't have intimate fellowship in this place. Now, I know that we have some people in our church that avoid grow groups. They're like, I like the big time together, but I don't really want to be in a grow group because, and I've actually had people tell me just, and I appreciate like their honesty, but they'll just say, I, I'm not in a grow group because I, you know, I know how people can be right? I mean, people can drive you nuts. They won't shut up. They're needy. They're superficial. They're too much information at prayer request time. You know, I don't want to know about their health issues. I don't, they won't shut up. They've got problems. They've got sinful attitudes. They eat all the good food, you know, and they're just, in other words, they're just like you. They're just like me. They're, they're imperfect. See, here's the thing. The, The point of a grow group isn't to find the perfect fit. It's about learning to be family. And those are two different things. They're two different things altogether. It's about learning to give of yourself and, and, and love other people and to care for people who are even different than you and to pray for them and with them and to be there in their times of need, to be there for them, to be there in times of celebration. It's a place to learn how to do relationships together like Jesus did. And we can't really do that in here as, as important as this is. And it's why we need those, those groups. Now, some people will tell you the only true church is the, is the big church, all right? Like in here. And people say, I don't want to grow a group. Other people say, the only true church happens in a home. 
We don't need a big group. We don't need no programs and budget and staff or worship service. But the Bible affirms both. Both of them are unique and both of them are needed. And notice in verse 42, it says, and they devoted themselves daily is what it says to the the fellowship. That is to, to each other. They were devoted to doing life together. See, church isn't an event you attend. It's a community you're committed to. Right? It, those are two different things. It's not an event. It's a community. It's, it's a family. My question is, are you devoted to doing life together or is church nothing more than an event at six o'clock on Saturday night for you? Because those are two entirely different things altogether. Is your participation in, in your church determined by how you're feeling about it? Remember what I said last week? If you decide, am I gonna go to church tonight? Well, do I feel like it? You know, do I like this series? Uh, you know, who's leading worship? How long is the sermon going to be? What's the topic? Or is the d- defining question for you is, what will happen if I'm not there? What will worship be like if I'm not there? What will fellowship be like if I'm not there? What will it be like if somebody there needs my, they need me to be with them, pray with them, talk with them, and, not, and what if I'm not there for them? Have you ever thought about that? What if you're not there for them? Are you devoted to fellowship or is this just an event? And are you devoted to a grow group? If you are not in a grow group at Gateway, you need to talk to one of the staff. We would love to get you set up in a grow group. Connecting with other believers in an intimate and personal level where you can really get to know each other and do do life together and and, and eat meals together and pray with one another. And when you're struggling, they know it and they can help you and be there for you and be on mission together. And then I just want to warn you, all right? I want to warn you that there's kind of a, so there could be a dark side to fellowship, all right? There could be a dark side to a church family where we're really close and we really, really love each other. And I've noticed this. I've noticed this sometimes. Like sometimes at, at, when church is over, right? Because before church, it's just a mad dash to get in here. I know how that is. But like after church, you guys are hanging around and you're talking and you know, the people you, and I love that. I love the fact that years ago, I mean, like five minutes after church was done, we were out of here, I was home having dinner. Now you guys stay around and you talk and you talk and you fellowship and like there's nowhere else to go for you. And we love, but we love that. We love what goes on. But sometimes we can get so tied up in those people that we're most connected to. I want to read for you a letter that uh, we received this week at church. This is from someone who visited our church last week. This is a hard all right, but I think it's, it's good for us to hear this. And remember, I'm reading this because I'm just telling you, I think our strength is we love each other, but if you're, if you're not part of us, then it can be hard. Here's what the email wrote. I recently moved to Wa- the Washougal area and I decided to try your church first. And I must say that this is the most unwelcoming experience I have ever felt in a new, new church in my 53 years. While I, I will never return to your church, I thought I might go over a couple of the reasons I felt unwelcome. I reviewed your website prior to attending, and thus I was expecting greeters, one in the parking lot, one in the lobby, and I received neither. Upon entering, I'm, I'm positive I looked lost and looked new, but I was merely handed a program and ignored, while the greeters seemed more interested in their conversations about what to do after the service. I sat myself in the back and asked God whether this church was a place for me, And what I received was a resounding no. 
During the early prayer, there were several people in the back talking over the gentleman leading the prayer from the pulpit. And this is extremely disrespectful to Christ, in my opinion. And while I was leaving, and it was early, not one person in the lobby, and there were many, said one syllable to me. And this made my decision easy. I do pray that you take these observations in the way that they are intended, not, not to admonish, but to give you some insight into what it looks and feels like to be an outsider in your church. And it can be hard. It can be hard because, you know, we love each other. <laughs> we love being together. My suggestion, though, is always, always make a little room. Always make a little room in the circle of people that you talk to for someone you don't know or someone you, you don't recognize. Now, here's why I'm hopeful. Because I got a letter just like that two years ago from a couple that visited our church. Same kind of letter. And I sent them an email that week and I invited them out to coffee and we got together and had coffee and they said, we're going to give Gateway another try and they came the next week. And I didn't warn them. I didn't warn you about them, but they came back and you guys loved them. They had a different experience. And now they're just a vital core part of our church. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. We just had a, we had a bad Sunday. You know, it happens. Um, but let's make a little room, if we can, for the people around us who aren't normally a part of our group. And here's the fifth thing, and I gotta, so I gotta do this because we gotta move on. They were devoted to praising God together. All right, here's, here's how it describes it. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. See, when believers get together and live out the gospel together, like we're doing, God is gonna work. When we pray together, God is going to answer prayers. When we proclaim the gospel, people are going to get saved and people are going to get baptized and lives are going to be changed and miracles are going to happen. We don't chase miracles. We chase Jesus and he does the work. But here's what it says in verse 47. And they were praising God. I love that. They were praising God now, I, I think it's really cool when, when you have your team that you like to cheer for. And you, got, you know, when your team plays, they're, they're in a game and, and you're watching on TV and you've got the shirt and the face paint. I always love that, unless it's USC. Then I don't like it so much. But I love it when you get excited and you got the shirt and the paint. Or I love it at graduations, right? When you're supposed to be quiet and you guys yell and hoot and holler. Maybe at a wedding, right? When we're like just a little bit rambunctious or, you know, but, but, but for Christians... I love it when we get together and, and, and we're celebrating Jesus and we're a little loud and there's some amens and, and we're singing out of tune and we don't care because we, we, just, we never get over the fact that Jesus came, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus saved. It just never gets old for us. And we preach about it and we get excited and we sing about it and we pray and we fast because it never gets old to us. We love God. We love to praise God. See, God wants us to be a family that does life together. As we've been talking about, to be united, to be one. My question is, are you doing that? Are you a spectator at this church? Or are you a contributor at this church? Are you on the fringe of this church? Are you diving right into the middle of this place? And the last thing is, they were devoted to recounting the cross together, which I thought would be a good way for us to end the service tonight. So I'm going I'm to ask the men if they'll go back. They're going to grab the bread, grab the cup. We're going to take that together and we'll be done. But I thought it would be good for us to remember what Jesus has done for us. That's what they did in the early church. Now, it says it this way, and they devoted themselves to 
Notice it says the fellowship and notice the breaking of bread. Now theologians, some theologians tell us the breaking of bread was a reference to a meal and some say it was a reference to communion. I think having studied scripture, I think it's a reference to both. When they got together at the temple, they would often take a meal together that, that culminated in communion. And when they would gather in homes, they did the same thing. When they would have grow group together, they would have a meal together and then they would take communion together. You're like, can you do that? Can you take communion together in your home? Well, I don't know. They did it. You know, God didn't strike them dead. They, church seemed to be going pretty good for them. Yes, that's what they did. They, and here was the idea. They just couldn't get together and not celebrate the cross. So the guys are going to come forward now. And if you've placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to, to take a wafer, to take a cup, and to hold on to that for a moment. See, communion is all about remembering the cross. It's remembering the, the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. It says that he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is, my, this is my body which is broken for you. And in the future, you'll get together and you'll sing some songs and you'll listen to a crazy long sermon and then you'll take some bread. And when you do that, remember my body. And you'll take a cup and that cup's gonna represent my blood that's been shed for you. And so you'll take some time and you'll think about that. You'll praise me for that. You'll remember that I gave my life for you. So communion reminds us of that last supper, of the sacrifice of Christ, of his body, of his blood. We can be forgetful sometimes why we're here, how we got here. So we take communion. Communion keeps us focused, right? How did we get here? Why are we here? Right there. Because of the cross. So here's what we're going to do. As the guys are handing out the elements, I'm going to encourage you to take a few moments to hold on to that, to talk to God. Maybe there's something you need to confess, something you need to repent for God. Get your heart clean first. I'm going to grab the guitar. I'm gonna, we're going to sing a song. And I, while we do that, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take the cup and take, take the, uh, the bread whenever you feel ready. And you can join with us as we sing or, or don't join with us as we sing. You can just take communion or, or uh, you can just listen to the words. But we want this just to be a time where you can be with God and you can remember the cross and what Jesus has done for you. Let me pray for us and then um, you can take communion when we're ready and we'll sing to the Lord. Father God, I thank you so much for our time together tonight. We covered a lot of ground. But what a, what a beautiful, beautiful, amazing picture we see, we see in the early church, this, this, this community that, that did life together, these, these people who loved you and they loved each other, they couldn't help it because your love had, had filled them and was overflowing. Father God, make us one. Father God, knit us together as we talked about last week. Help us to remember that unity is not something we achieve. It's merely something we receive through your son. And as we hold on to this bread and this cup this evening, we remember how we got here. We remember why we're here. We remember how we got clean and we remember where we're headed to be with you forever in heaven. Thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. We praise you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen.